Let's, uh, let's stand in reverence of God's holy word. Today's text comes from Psalm 135, verses 1 through 9 and 13 through 21. And the word of the Lord says, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and a beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. Your name, O Lord, endures forever, your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The word of the Lord, praise be to Christ. You can all be seated. We're at the end of a series of sermons on the attributes of God, these characteristics that make God uniquely who He is. Back in Psalm 139, we covered the ideas that God is omniscient, He's all-knowing, He's omnipresent, He's everywhere all the time, He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful and able to do whatever he wants to do. He's holy, he's completely pure and righteous, meaning God does the right thing every time. And for the past two weeks, we broke down Psalm 103 and considered one more attribute of God. That is, God is merciful. We talked about how God is just, so sin must be punished. We talked about how God is merciful. So he withholds that punishment from all of us and that God is gracious and he gives us the gift of Christ on the cross taking the punishment for my sin and your sin so that we don't have to fear God's justice but instead we can enjoy God forever. And I gave y'all one big strong point last week and I'm going to ask you, did anybody remember the one big point I made last week that I challenged you to remember? God's not fair. God is not fair. Who said that? Oh, yeah, you get a prize. Johnny House is going to give you a $20 bill. Just, just see him after service. Uh, so so um, uh, then I won't get any pay. No, I'm just joking. Uh, but um, God is not fair. We deserve the punishment that God poured out on Christ on the cross. And a lot of people say that God is not fair because some people go to hell and some people go to heaven. But the fact is, He's not fair, but He is merciful. 
And we know He's merciful because any of us get to go to heaven at all. We don't deserve heaven. We don't. But God's not fair. And He gives it to us anyway if we trust in the love of Christ. So today, we're going to talk about one final attribute of God. We're going to talk about how God is sovereign. He is sovereign. And if you're a note taker, we're going to have four sections in our sermon today. The first is God is superlative in quality. That, that we're going to talk about the definition of what it means to be sovereign. We're going to talk about how God is sovereign in suffering. We're going to talk about how God's sovereign in salvation. And we're going to ask a question at the end and kind of try to answer the question, what do we do with this sovereign God? What do we do with this idea that God is sovereign? How does this idea change how we function as followers of Christ? So we'll start with this. God is superlative in quality. Verse 5 of today's text, at verse, 13, verse 5 and 6, and then verse 13 read like this. For I know the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas and all deeps. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. Merriam-Webster defines the word sovereign this way. It means superlative in quality. And what that means is God is the best of the best. It means of the most exalted kind, the highest of the highest. It means having generalized curative powers. What that means is God is the answer to every problem of life. It means of an unqualified nature. God doesn't meet the qualifications to be sovereign. He sets the qualifications to be sovereign. It means having undisputed ascendancy. It doesn't matter whether we acknowledge that God is sovereign or not. He is sovereign. It's who He is. It means possessed of supreme power, unlimited in extent. We talked about how God is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. And He's omnipotent, all-powerful, and able to do everything that He wants to do. And all of these attributes combine to form this idea that God is sovereign. The word sovereign means that God enjoys autonomy. We talked about how in the book of Isaiah it says that God is holy, holy, holy. And we talked about the implication of that, and that is that we are not, not, not. God is unique and separate from us in that way. He doesn't need any of us or anything in order to exist. He is perfectly self-sufficient and perfectly pure in every way. And finally, it means characteristic of or befitting of a supreme ruler. Sovereign is not a word that we use a lot in our normal day-to-day conversation. And if we do hear it used, it's usually in the context of a king or a queen from a foreign country. We don't have a sovereign. We don't have a king or a queen or a supreme ruler So it's an idea that we really don't give a lot of thought to. So we're going to break it down a little and consider the question, what do we even mean when we say God is sovereign? So here's my cornbread definition for this concept. God is sovereign. That statement means this. 
God has unlimited power in all things and ultimate authority over all things. Being sovereign means God has power. He's able to do whatever he wants to do, and he also has authority. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do. There's a difference between the two. In every aspect of daily living, though, from the beginning of time to the end of time, God has the power and the authority to do exactly what he wants to do. He's able to do what he wants to do, and he has the right to do what he wants to do. He is in control. He is in charge. He is God, and we are not. My girls, as they're getting older, have started getting more and more involved in sports. And I've enjoyed watching them. Uh, I've enjoyed watching them learn about sports, and I've enjoyed watching them participate in sports. And I always like sports myself. I always like playing. I always like watching. And as my nieces were growing up, I helped Austin, my brother-in-law, a lot coach them. And I enjoyed coaching them when they were kids. Now, I haven't coached my own girls yet. Uh, they've played soccer and basketball and softball. But likely I'm going to soon because I find it incredibly difficult to sit on the sidelines and not interject my own expert opinions into everything that's happening out on the ball field. And especially so in softball. Uh, Glenn and Lindsay Thomas is a couple we all know. Uh, they've coached our girls in softball so far, and all of us know and love Glenn and Lindsay. Glenn played baseball. He knows the game. Lindsay was one of the better softball players, I think, that our county's ever produced. And our girls love playing for them. They love them as coaches and as people. And I haven't had a single complaint about their coaching. The difficulty for me lies in trying really hard not to coach from the bleachers, uh, especially when the girls come up to bat in the game. Because there I am sitting behind the backstop where they can hear me giving obsessive instruction to them while they're trying to bat. Choke up on the bat a little bit. Uh, hold that back elbow up a little more. Uh, move a little closer to the plate. Now back up a step. Move up in the box. No, no, honey, that's back. That's not up. Uh, now get ready. Don't look at me. Look at the ball. <laughs> and I do all of this thinking that my magical advice and all my vast knowledge of the game, that with that, I'll have the power to enable my girls to get a hit every time they step in the batter's box. But that is simply not the truth. I do have authority over my girls. As their dad, I have the natural right to instruct my kids in every aspect of life, including how they function in the batter's box. Remember that, Brittany, the next time you're fussing at me for yelling at the girls during games. She doesn't sit with me during games. My wife doesn't. So, it is my natural right to do so. I have authority over my children, but I don't have the power to ensure they're going to make contact with the ball. Neil Smith, he, Neil here, he owns and operates a plumbing business, and he's really good at what, he's, what he does. You just cringed when I said your name, didn't you? Uh, he's, because uh, I make fun of him a lot. He's the primary investor and owner of the business. Uh, get ready, because I'm, I'm really going to build you up here, okay? His name is on the sign. 
His name is on the deed to the property they operate out of. His name is on the title to the trucks they work out of. He signs the paychecks for his employees. Now, Nick Altry, sitting back in the back, is a plumber that works for Neil. If Nick went to a job in someone's home and he walked in and he went into the kitchen and he looked at a leak that needed to be repaired and told the person there at the house what needed to be done and then immediately walked back into the living room and pulled off his shoes and laid down on the customer's couch and took a nap, then Nick could give Neil's business a bad name. On the flip side, if Nick goes into the same home and does an excellent job and he's polite and he's courteous and he keeps his shirt on while he's working and he gets the problem resolved quickly and professionally, he can create more business and a positive reputation for Neil's company. Nick has power in that company. He doesn't have the authority that Neil rightly has, but he does have the power to impact Neil's business. God is different from us, though. God has both power and authority. He is free to do whatever he wants to do. If he wants to create a universe, he speaks and it's done. He is completely self-existent. No one created God and he doesn't need a good diet and proper exercise to continue existing. He is completely self-sufficient. He doesn't depend on the economy or the job market or the government to be who he is. He has the power and the authority to treat us as he chooses. There's no government mandate that can require God to give me the same rewards as he gives Lisa or, or Aslan or Johnny. He can answer my prayers how he chooses. He is not required to live up to my expectations of what God should do or how God should think. To paraphrase A.W. Tozier, if every person on the planet became an atheist, it would not affect God's status as God in any way whatsoever. God is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over things that we think are just random, are dumb lucks. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every time you roll the dice, God is in control. God is sovereign over every king and president and prince. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is sovereign over every step we take and every plan we make. Proverbs 20, 24 says, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? And Proverbs 19, 21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. The big picture point I want you to grasp here is that God is God and we are are not. God has authority and power. He is superlative in quality. He is sovereign. As we dig deeper into the text, we see something that we don't often think about. 
And I'll tell you, Aslan, I've thought a lot about our conversations about this as I prepared for today. But God is sovereign over suffering. God is sovereign over human suffering. The text today says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. Who in, our, in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty things? I think this is an important point for us to make here because a lot of times even people who present as mature believers seem to have this question, if God is good, why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there cancer and war and child abuse and political fighting and divorce and murder? God, if you're so good... Why does this hurt so much? Our text today makes it clear that God is sovereign just over our sunny days when everything feels good, but He's also sovereign over the storms we encounter. He's sovereign over life, and He's sovereign over our greatest fear and our greatest pain, death. Deuteronomy 32.39 says, See now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. 1 Samuel 12, 6 says, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, to hell, and raises up. Now, that's not a picture of the God we got in Sunday school as kids, is it? You know, the one we saw the painting on the wall, and it's really backlit nicely from the back, and he's Caucasian and has blue eyes, and looks kind of like a Breck shampoo model. Really nice hair. God kills, and he makes alive. But not just that. As I got deeper into Scripture this week, I see that God is sovereign over disabilities and over debilitating illness. Exodus 4.11 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God was sovereign when the planes flew into the Twin Towers on 9-11, when Hurricane Katrina destroyed people's homes and their lives in New Orleans. Amos 3.6 says, Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God is sovereign and in control of your good days and on the days when the worst case scenario hits and the world seems to be falling apart. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all things. He's sovereign over our biggest wins in life and even our most painful losses. 
Job 1.21 says, The Lord gave and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In the book of Genesis, there's a young man named Joseph and he's his father's favorite son and his brothers hate him for it. And they plot to get rid of him and they throw him in the bottom of a well and they leave him there to die. But then there's some second thoughts and they pull him out of the well. But they see a caravan going by and they sell him into slavery to this caravan. And he's taken to a foreign land. And they put animal blood on his coat and they show it to his dad and tell him, Joseph's dead. But he works really hard as a slave and he winds up in the home of a man named Potiphar. And he does the best he can and given the circumstances, he excels. But in the midst of it all, Potiphar's wife finds him attractive and makes a pass at him. And Joseph declines her advances and she's ticked off. So she accuses him of attacking her and he gets thrown into jail. And he gets into jail and he does the best he can there. And he's an exemplary prisoner despite the circumstances. And he becomes a source of comfort and counsel for other prisoners. But when they're released, they forget all about Joseph. When they finally remember him, he winds up giving counsel to Pharaoh, the king of all Egypt, and he saves the entire nation from a famine that's coming. And as a reward, Pharaoh puts him in charge of the entire nation of Egypt. But the famine spreads beyond Egypt's borders, and Joseph's family comes to him starving to death. So here he is, face to face with the brothers that wanted him dead. And instead of having bitterness over the bad history, God uses all this trouble toward one primary goal that is good, to save the nation of Israel. It says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 21, Joseph said it, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God is sovereign and He is fully present and actively engaged in every circumstance of your life. I saw a meme on the internet the other day that said that God was sovereign when the earth was flooded and God put chickens, uh, two chickens onto the ark. And today, because God is sovereign and He had foreknowledge of what would come, we are blessed to have Chick-fil-A. But it's beyond that though. He's present and He's fully aware and fully in control of our pain. If you've been through a divorce, He's been eyewitness to every tear that's fallen, to every moment of grief and rejection you felt. God takes all this pain and this suffering and worry that you experience through divorce or through cancer or through loss of a loved one or through the pain of unfulfilled uh, hopes and dreams. And He takes all this and in His own way and in His own will, He turns it into good. Chris Graham, I asked Chris for permission to share this. Chris gave his testimony a while back, and a lot of you know his story. But Chris is a member of our church, and a few years ago, Chris suffered a horrible industrial accident. And he was hospitalized for months, and he went through numerous surgeries. And though he's had an incredible recovery, Chris still can't do everything he wants to do. He can't. And he still has struggles because of the injuries. And Chris went through this and he has every right to be bitter 
and angry at God about this. And instead, I asked Chris yesterday, I sent him a text, and I asked if I could talk about his story today. And he wrote back and he said, yes, you can. God has helped me through all my life. Let's praise Him. God has used Chris's tragedy in remarkable ways. A while back, some of us noticed here in the church, myself, Daniel, and others, that there was a group of people that were meeting for church on Highway 72 in a one-car concrete block garage And it was cold and there were so many of them that were sitting outside the garage in the yard, lined up in homemade pews, wrapped up in winter coats, worshiping God in the cold. And I stopped to meet them and talk to them and I found out these guys were refugees who had come to our country through Jubilee Partners in Comer. They were from Myanmar, a country just north of India and bordering on China on the other side. And these were people who were insanely persecuted in their country. These are people who are locked in cages in their country. And people pay an admission fee to come see them like they're going to a zoo. That better be Jesus. They're persecuted and the victims of genocide in their country. I sat down and talked with some of them and I found out they were Baptists. And I invited them without asking permission from the church. I invited them to come and use our space to worship. And we developed a relationship with these people. And even though there were a lot of language barriers there, we developed relationship with them. And Chris developed a relationship with them. And Chris went through a lot of tragedy, but something came out of that tragedy that was meaningful. And because he went through this tragedy, Chris was able to bless these people. And Chris, I know, doesn't want me to say this, but I'm going to say this. There was a church building for sale in Comer, and Chris was able to purchase that church building, and he gave it to the Koreans. He didn't want a plaque with his name on it. He didn't want the paper there when they did their ribbon cutting. He wanted to do it for the glory of God. And the Korean, people who saw their family members murdered, kept in cages, and had to leave the only home they ever knew To come to a place where they didn't know the language and didn't know if they would survive. You talk to them today, and I'm going to tell you, without any exception, amongst the members of that church body, if you ask them why they're here in the United States, they will tell you, God brought us here to share the gospel. Not, woe is me, I want to go home to Myanmar, I just wish life could be the way it used to be. God had a reason for all of this. 
He brought us here to give Him glory. Johnny Erickson Tata is one of my favorite Christian figures and she suffered a spinal cord injury as a teenager. And she writes about how a friend, Steve Estes, once shared these words with her that set the course for her life. She wrote, he told her, God permits what He hates to accomplish what He loves. He went on to say, Johnny, God allows all sorts of things He doesn't approve of. God hated the torture and injustice and treason that led to the crucifixion, yet He permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. Like Joseph, when he told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish the saving of many lives. The world would look at a story like Chris's and say, that was tragic. That's proof that God isn't good. Look at what happened to him. But Chris looks at his own story and says, God has always helped me. I'm alive. What was intended for evil, God turned it around and made it good. And that leads us to another concept, and that is God is sovereign over salvation. Verses 3 and 4 and verse 14 in today's text says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen, it's an important word there, He's chosen Jacob for Himself and Israel as His own possession. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on his servants. In Romans 9, Paul talks about Jacob and he talks about his brother Esau. They were twins. The psalmist mentions Jacob here in our text. Says that God has chosen Jacob. So, even though they weren't born, then Romans 9 says this, Romans 9, 11 through 13, it says, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, God chose. Jacob's mother was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, God said this, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul is using the example of two brothers who, before they were even born, God made choices about their lives. Scripture says that God has a plan for salvation for those who will be saved, and it doesn't depend on our behavior. It doesn't depend on us, but it depends on the sovereign God and what He has done to promote our salvation. Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 16 says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. According to this passage in Romans, if you've been justified by faith in the blood of Christ, it's because God had a plan for your life before you even had a life. This is an amazing thing to consider. Augustine said it this way, and this way makes more sense to me. Even our faith in God is a gift from God. So our believing is an incredible expression of the grace of God. It's a gift. Luke 5.32 takes it a step further and drives home this point that it's not about what we do, but it's about what God has done. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that's an amazing thought to think that the creator of the entire universe, this sovereign God, would bother to choose a sinner like me. In Mark 10, Jesus talks about how difficult it is for a man to enter the kingdom of heaven based on his own works. In verses 26 and 27, the people listening to him, the text says, were exceedingly astonished and said to Jesus, Then who can be saved if it's not up to us? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. Jesus is saying that no matter how well you follow the rules, no matter how wealthy you are or how good you are in the world's view, none of that will ever save you. And the people were shocked that Jesus was saying this. I mean, we would look at that and say, geez, Neil has followed every rule for his entire life and he's, he wears nice clothes and he drives a really nice truck with a lift kit. I mean, if Neil Smith can't get into heaven, who can get into heaven? But salvation doesn't depend on what Neil does. It depends on what Jesus did. Salvation is not based on what we do. It is based on God's plan. The good news of the gospel is that God loves sinners. And that if you trust in His love, you get heaven as a reward. If you go to hell instead, it won't be because God was looking at a crystal ball before time began, and he came across uh, 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 my sister's spiritual resume, her future resume, and said, hmm, this one, Cindy Kiesler, she's going to go to church every Sunday. Check, mark for her. Oh, and look at this. Uh, she, she, um, she helps people who are in need. Double check. That's incredible. Oh, wow, look at this. She drank a whole bottle of wine before church this morning. Oh, oh, sorry, Cindy. Uh, hell for you. The good news of the gospel is Romans 5, 8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. If any of us go to hell, it won't be because... It will be because we are sinners who deserve God's wrath. But the good news is that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the price for our sins so that anyone who trusts in His love can enjoy heaven forever. God will have mercy on whom He chooses to have mercy. 
Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is both the author and the finisher of our faith. God starts the process. God finishes the process. Jesus did all the work. We get all the benefits. God is sovereign in salvation. So how do we respond to a sovereign God? The text reads in verses 1 and 2 and then 15 through 21, it reads like this. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. So what do we do about the sovereign God? We worship Him. But I want you to understand, when the Bible talks about worship, it's not just about singing for 20 minutes on Sunday morning. Romans 12.2 said this. Paul wrote this about worship. He wrote, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Give your whole life. Nothing more, nothing less. That is the definition of worshiping God. A few years ago, I had one of the most disappointing conversations I've ever had with a young couple about church life. They were slowly but surely disengaging from church fellowship to do other things. They weren't leaving for another church. They were just drifting away. They were enjoying other things. And eventually, they were barely showing up. When they did... It was incredibly obvious that they were discontent and they couldn't wait to get out of the door to move on to other things. And in our conversation we had when they were justifying their exit from being active in church life, the wife and the couple looked at me and said, we know everybody else wants to go the extra mile. We know everybody else wants to be here every time the church doors are open. Everybody else wants to bring their kids to children's ministry and go to Sunday school and be discipled and volunteer. But we just don't want our lives to be consumed with church. We just burned out on the whole thing. Being consumed with something is actually a biblical concept. In Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, the writer says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
Paul is using language that evokes a picture of a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem where a lamb is placed on the altar and is consumed by the flames as an offering to God. And he's suggesting that we are to be completely consumed ourselves. The writer, the psalmist, wrote about idols. And we all have idols. Our idols might be money, our entertainment, our physical appearance, our kids' sports, politics or sexual identity, or UGA football. Can I tell you something? I've always tried to be really transparent from the pulpit. I'm a huge Atlanta Braves fan. Actually, Kalen walked in today, and he's got a new Braves cap on, and the first thing I'm going to do after church is go ask him where he got it. Because I want it, Brittany. Um, And I'm a huge Georgia football fan. But the deeper I get into this Christianity thing, the less I understand the mindset of someone who can go and tailgate for eight hours, sit four hours in a football game, go out with friends for another four hours, and then tell me they don't have an hour a week to volunteer at church. Maybe that's my own problem, my own struggle. How how can you know Jesus and not be consumed? How can you see the image in your mind of Christ on the cross? And think about anything else. How can you know that it gives us eternity? Eternity. And settle for the crumbs that our idols would feed us. Ignatius of Antioch said this. He said, Apart from Christ... Let nothing dazzle you. I've done ministry now for almost 20 years. And I've pastored here for five years. And I think if I've learned anything, it's that there is no programmatic magic bullet. It's going to make everybody desire Jesus. There's no special Bible study to make everybody want Him. There's no, there's no magic words I can say. I don't know how to make anyone crave 
Jesus. And I don't know if I can. God is sovereign. And he turns our hearts whichever way he chooses. The great pastor, Reverend Robert Murray McShane, offered this advice to me and to you. He said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. He wrote, Live much in the smiles of God, bask in His beams, feel His all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and rest in His almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in Him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. If you know Jesus as the sovereign God of all things, the one who is superlative in quality and sovereign over our suffering and even sovereign over our salvation, everything else in the world will pale in comparison. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. This past Wednesday night, We started something new with our kids in the midst of our lessons and in the midst of all of our fun. We started doing a Baptist catechism. If you don't know what catechism is, it's an ancient church tradition. It's a process of questions and answers that the church has traditionally used to help young children and new believers build up in their faith. This past Wednesday... We answered question number one. And I believe it's the most important question that we as believers need to know the answer to. And the question is this. Who is the first and the best of all beings? Thank you. God is the first and the best of all beings beings. He is superlative in quality. He gave us his life. The only reasonable response is to give our own lives in return. Worshiping God isn't just about showing up to church for an hour or so every week and singing songs. It's recognizing that He's the first and the best and He's worthy of us burning up and burning out for. 
I mentioned on the la- in the announcements on the last Sunday in September, I would have preached here for five years. And for five years, I have challenged you with the idea that God loves you even though you're a sinner. And if I'm here for 25 more, you're going to hear that every Sunday. But today, I'm going to start a new challenge, and I'm going to tell you some people are going to get upset, and they're not going to like being challenged, and they're not going to want to change their lives, and they're going to leave. Today, I'm going to tell you that God loves you just like you are, but He loves you too much to leave you just like you are. If you're willing to change the patterns of your lives, to surrender to Jesus, to consume Him, and to be consumed by Him, according to Psalm 34 8, you will taste and see that He is good, that He is better than any other substitute, than any other distraction that the world might offer you. So your new challenge starting today is to live a new way to live in Christ. Forget about your busy schedules. Forget about your own priorities. Forget about all the earthly things that attract you and distract you. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith.